Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today, I wanted to talk about a term that has been floating around in the deconstruction community, at least for the past six years since I joined it. I'm sure you've heard the term too. It's trauma bonding. Sometimes the term is used to talk about the addictive quality between a person healing from abuse and the person that perpetuated the abuse, such as a parent, a church leader, or a romantic partner. But other times, the term is used to talk about the almost instantaneous bond that can occur between survivors of abuse as they share their experiences with one another. And I thought the term trauma bonding was accurate for both of these phenomena, but it turns out I was wrong. There's a difference between trauma bonding, which is that emotional connection we were talking about between an abused person and their abuser, and bonding over trauma which is the almost instant feeling of closeness and being understood that happens when two people have experienced the same kind of trauma. Today, we're going to talk about trauma bonding specifically so you can understand what the cycle looks like, what leads us to engage in these patterns, and how we can begin to break free if we find ourselves still in relationships where attachment and pain are mixed. Next week, We'll talk about the experience many of us have had while bonding over shared trauma and the benefits as well as the possible pitfalls that can come from the insta-bonding that happens in recovery communities and how you can keep yourself healthy and safe as you continue to heal. Trauma bonding can look like any of these scenarios from Psych Central in case you're still confused about what I'm talking about. So for instance, if you have a combative spouse that's overly critical and finds a way to blame their problems on you, your relationship might include a trauma bond. This person might even be jealous or suspicious of you, or they might try to control you. So we're looking for those kind of narcissistic dynamics or um, the dynamics where people are offloading the blame for things that they do wrong onto you. Um, There might even be some isolation and some of the things that we talked about in some of our podcasts on narcissism. Trauma bonding happens with children and their parents who have high instances of narcissistic traits. Perhaps they take credit for all of your achievements while criticizing most of what you do. They may be temperamental and they might use bullying tactics, but maybe they also bought you whatever you asked for when you were growing up. There may be some trauma bonding that's going on there. This can also happen in friendships. So if you have a friend who seems to think highly of you, but then abandons you when other friends are around, and you've heard that this friend is maybe gossiping about you behind your back, spreading unkind rumors, or has even told outright lies about you, but then when you confront them, they apologize and treat you like their best friend again until the next round of abandonment and gossip. So if you have this cycle with a friend where They're really kind to you, treat you like you're the most important person. But then when 
other more interesting people are around. They abandon you, pretend like they don't know you, maybe even gossip about you or mock you or make fun of you, but then reconcile, apologize, make excuses for themselves, treat you like their best friend again, maybe love bomb you, but then repeat the cycle. That can be a trauma bond as well. If you've ever equated love with pain, and many of us from Christian and Christian-adjacent backgrounds have, I mean, in the Bible, we've got Hebrews 12, 6 through 11, that even says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So we've got God, who is set up as the perfect example of love in many churches, saying, if I love you, I'm going to hurt you. Not just I'm going to correct you, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to you know, help you learn how to live life better, but I'm going to scourge you. I'm going to cause you pain. And this is kind of set up as a model for parents, that this is how you parent children in Christian homes, that if you love them, you don't spare the rod. And for many people in Mormonism, the rod was equated with teaching the gospel. We were, we were told that the word of God, you know, was the iron rod. Um, but it is literally translated as like a whipping stick or a rod of iron that you would beat your child with in some Christian religions. And so you can kind of see where this mixture of parental love and then causing pain can kind of get mixed up and conflated sometimes in Christianity. So if any of that resonates, this may be an episode that you want to listen to. Before we get into the details, I want to remind you that monthly donors to the podcast enjoy a live weekly discussion with me every single Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time, where we delve further into the topics on the podcast and provide individual clarity and support where needed. If you would like additional support, or if you just want to join a community of other listeners who are not only working to deconstruct after high-demand religion, but are actively working to rebuild a life that's even better, become a monthly donor. Go to emancipateyourmind.org, click on the window that says support the podcast and give a gift, choose any monthly donation amount, and you'll be added to the weekly email list where you'll receive additional journal prompts and tools to help you get more from each podcast, as well as the link to the call each week. I really do hope to see you there. Okay, so what is trauma bonding? Trauma bonding was a term coined by the therapist Patrick Carnes. It's often talked about as a phenomenon that happens in romantic relationships between an abuser and a person being abused. But more recently, the conversation has expanded to include family relationships, friendships, and even relationships experienced inside of churches and businesses. Trauma bonding happens in a cycle where the person you're in relationship with may be emotionally, mentally, or physically abusive or hurtful. So maybe you wouldn't classify it as abuse, but it's really damaging and hurtful, and it happens cyclically. So this isn't someone who just accidentally hurts you once. This is a cycle of hurt. And then they follow up with a period of apology, love bombing, unconditional acceptance, and being everything you hope for in a partner, friend, or parent. So during this time, so the hurt happens first in this cycle, and then afterwards, there's a period 
of reconciliation where the where there's a whole bunch of love bombing, um, apology. The person may flagellate themselves, may you know really pay penance for what they did, or they may make excuses. That's possible as well. But they may tell you that they're sorry. They never meant to hurt you. You're the most important person in their lives, and they'll never do it again. And they may tell you that they can't live without you, or the converse of that is they may threaten to hurt themselves if you leave them. So there can be some of that as well. During the honeymoon or love bombing phase, your brain gets flooded with dopamine and dopamine makes you feel good. It's the neurochemical that causes you to feel pleasure, satisfaction, and motivation. And during these phases of the relationship where you're being love bombed, where you're getting all of this attention, you may feel a state of ecstasy and it can feel like you're on top of the world. Also during the stage of the abuse cycle, you may begin to feel confused about the abusive episode, believing that they really do love you, that they just made an honest mistake and that they will do better from now on. Now, I'm not talking about people who make one mistake or who, you know, make the same mistake a couple of times. We're talking about a cyclical hurt abuse cycle followed by reconciliation. And if they experience trauma earlier in life, which is very likely if they're engaged in this cycle, then you may truly sympathize or even empathize with them. You may understand why they struggle in the ways that they do, but that doesn't make it something you have to endure. It doesn't make it healthy for you. And it doesn't make you responsible to stay because you understand the trauma that created these behaviors. So we can have empathy for the things that people have experienced that have led them to be the way they are, but that doesn't then give them an excuse to perpetuate bad behavior simply because they've experienced trauma in their past. So your past trauma does not equal a free pass to hurt whoever you want. This can be a little bit difficult in these trauma-bonded relationships. In a trauma-bonded cycle, the honeymoon phase doesn't last, and eventually the other person begins to repeat these same past behaviors. And you either consciously or subconsciously begin to pick up on cues that you aren't completely safe in the relationship again. Their moods might swing. They might begin to criticize you again. And so you'll walk around on eggshells trying to keep the pending pain from happening. But eventually, in the trauma-bonded cycle, another abusive event or episode will occur. And the cycle creates confusion for the brain. On the one hand, the brain knows that what you experience during the abuse phase is not okay, but because the abuser can also be warm, kind, thoughtful, maybe a lot of fun, your brain begins to create stories about why the abuse isn't as bad as you think it is. This might be reinforced by the person themselves telling you that the bad times aren't as bad as you think they are or that you're being dramatic about it. You may also begin to make excuses for the abuser because of their past trauma and tell yourself that they don't mean to hurt you. And that can be true. But again, just because they don't mean to hurt you doesn't make it okay that this continues to repeat. As the cycle repeats for months or years, or if you have a childhood history of this kind of cycle, you may also believe that you are doing something to make them hurt you and somehow that you're at fault for the abuse and that because you believe you're at fault, you may try to control the abuse through something known as the fawn response. 
So when we talk about going into fight or flight, fight or flight aren't the only options when we feel like we're in danger. Fight, flight, freeze, and fawn are actually the four responses that are available to us when we feel like we are in danger. And the fawn response is triggered by that same part of our brain that controls the fight or flight response, which is the amygdala. In the fawn response, you resort to people-pleasing behavior to try and keep the other person from hurting you again. It's your attempt to control the situation and their emotions and their behavior to keep yourself safe. And I know many people listening to this podcast can relate with that. This idea that if I'm just good enough, if I'm just perfect enough, if I just walk on eggshells well enough, then they won't have an explosive episode or they won't hurt me again. And maybe you had a parent like this growing up, and maybe because you developed this pattern, you ended up with a romantic relationship that played out the same pattern, or you have friendships where the same pattern plays out, or maybe this played out at church, or it plays out at work with your boss. Just know that if you find yourself when you feel like you're in danger, people-pleasing, walking on eggshells, and trying to control the situation, trying to control the other people's emotional response so that they won't hurt you, either emotionally or mentally or physically, then you may have some trauma bonding in your past. And it, it may be time to get curious about that and just figure out where that came from and like what's going on inside of you. What are some of the thoughts and the beliefs and the emotions going on inside of you when you are worried that someone else might be emotionally escalating or is showing red flags in a relationship. Now, we kind of touched on this earlier, but trauma bonding isn't just an intense emotional bond. Some of us, when we're watching someone else in a trauma bond, even if we've had trauma bonds ourselves, when we're watching someone else in a trauma bond and we can tell that they're being mistreated by another person, we may be confused why they continue to go back to this person again and again. But trauma bonding isn't just an intense like emotional attachment. This isn't just about regular human attachment. It's actually addictive. And this is what makes it feel so difficult to leave this kind of relationship. This is why you get, you know, battered spouse syndrome. This is why you get people who continue to go back to their abuser even after they've left. So maybe there's a really bad episode of physical violence. Somebody leaves, goes to a shelter for the night. Maybe they stay there even for a few days, but eventually they go back to the person who abused them because of an intense biochemical response that we have to this cycle. And I'm not saying that it's addictive in a hyperbolic way. Your body actually produces biochemicals through the abuse cycle that create highs just as if you were taking external chemicals into your body. The adrenaline and cortisol released during the stress of the abuse, while you may hate the actual abuse, you may get used to the rush of excitement that comes from the adrenaline that rushes your bloodstream when you're under threat. Many people that try to date someone healthy after being in a long-term trauma bond with a romantic partner, will describe their new dating experience as boring because there aren't times when you're in danger and you get this rush of adrenaline followed by the rush of dopamine 
during the reconciliation phase. And so some begin to equate the chaos with passion. And they begin to believe that if it's not tumultuous, then it's not love. And even in movies, we see this kind of dynamic played out that love and romance are supposed to be always thrilling, exciting, uh, kind of rife with emotional angst. And those are the feelings you get in trauma bonds. This rush of adrenaline when you're under threat, followed by a rush of dopamine whenever you're in reconciliation. During that repair phase after the abuse, when your partner is love bombing you and showering you with attention and affection, your body releases dopamine, like we said before, and that signals the reward centers in your brain. According to a 2022 article in Thought Catalog, this begins to rewire your brain so you begin to associate your abusive partner with pleasure and perhaps even with survival. The crazy part is that dopamine flows more readily to your brain when there is an intermittent schedule instead of it being available steadily and predictably. So if we always had a steady supply of dopamine, we wouldn't get the same high from it. We wouldn't get that same feel-good feeling inside of us as we do when it's only given to us intermittently. This is why narcissistic abuse can be really addictive. This is why these trauma bond cycles are so addictive is because when they're paying you attention, when they're praising you, when they're loving on you, when they're giving you great trips to Europe or they're buying you all the things that you want and you are the center or it feels like you're the center of their world, That hit feels so good and it's really addictive. This is the reason we find that money we win in a lottery or through gambling, even if we've spent more money trying to win than we just gained, is so much more exciting than our consistent, reliable paycheck that we get from our job every two weeks. This is also why gambling is so much more addictive than going to work from nine to five every week. So your brain can get addicted to these intermittent hits of dopamine followed by the lows that come from, you know, the the stress and then the spike in adrenaline. So it feels like you're on an emotional roller coaster all the time. And if that becomes normal, then you start equating love, you start equating relationships with this intense cycle of excitement and threat and pain and grief. And because you're feeling all these things all the time, your body begins to crave this like intermittent hit of adrenaline and then dopamine. So we actually get biochemically addicted to the trauma bond cycle. To sum it up, biological anthropologist Dr. Helen Fisher describes it this way. The brains of those in adversity-ridden relationships become activated in an eerily similar way to the brains of cocaine addicts. So if you recognize that you're caught in a trauma bond with someone and you feel like you just can't escape or you can't live without this person, please recognize that it's not because you're weak or broken or unintelligent. It's because you've likely formed an addiction at a biological level to the extreme lows and the extreme highs of the relationship. You've learned to equate chaos with love. You've learned to equate 
chaos with passion and excitement and you feel most comfortable and most safe, ironically, in that chaos with someone who's treating you poorly. Now, some of you may be thinking like, am I trauma bonded? I don't know. Here are some signs according to marriage and family therapist Katie Morton that she says are some of the key indicators that you might be trauma bonded. These are by no means a full and comprehensive list, but she said these are seven of usually the key indicators that you're in a trauma bonded relationship. So the first one is you feel stuck in your relationship and you may not see a viable way out of it. The second one is you feel like you're walking on eggshells around them and you're worried you'll do something wrong that will set them off. Third, you know this person is doing things to hurt you, but you're worried they'll do something to hurt themselves if you leave. Four, people around you have mentioned that you need to get out of the relationship. Fifth, when you try to leave, you immediately feel an intense longing to see that person again, and the pain of that longing always brings you back. Or it might not even be longing. It may be a guilty feeling. It may be a shame feeling. It may be a feeling of obligation. But there's this deep emotional pull that says you can't leave forever. You you have to go back. Number six, you're punished or given the silent treatment when you say or do something they consider to be wrong. And number seven, friends or family are disturbed by some of the things they've said or done to you in your relationship, but you don't really feel like it's that big of a deal. So if other people are like, oh my gosh, that is horrible. And you're just kind of like, eh, it might be something to get curious about. Maybe you've just gotten so familiar and so used to whatever harm is coming your way that you just don't see it as much of a big deal because it's just the norm. Especially if you grew up in a childhood with this kind of chaos emotionally, if you're in a friendship or a romantic partnership where this is continuing to happen, this just might feel normal. And other people outside might be like, this isn't normal. This isn't healthy. So it's just something to get curious about and to become aware of. Now, the good news is, is that you aren't stuck here and you can heal. Again, a note from Katie Morton that I think is so important for us to understand is it is normal for you to feel sad about the loss of this relationship and even miss the person that you are healing from trauma bonding with. This can include feelings of sadness and missing the connection. You had to an abusive God, for instance, from a high demand religion or missing an abusive church relationship. Many people may expect you to feel more anger or disdain for your abuser, but all you may feel is grief and sadness that that relationship is gone. And that is absolutely normal. This is an expected part of grieving and there is nothing wrong with you experiencing this sense of loss. And this sense of loss, this sense of grief also doesn't mean that you have to go back to the relationship. Sometimes we equate the feelings of grief with, oh my gosh, this was the wrong decision. So recognize that grief is going to be a part of a change in any relationship, whether we're ending the relationship, whether we're creating distance, whether we're trying to get to a healthier place. There will be a part of us that grieves the way things used to be. 
and the path that that had us set on. That was our life. That was our reality. And in some ways, that was part of our identity. It makes sense that we will grieve the loss of those things. Anytime we change or move, there's a grief process. Sometimes the grief process is very small. Sometimes the grief process is bigger, depending on how emotionally attached we were to the thing that we are changing or losing. If you're changing jobs, for instance, and you were only at your past job for like a year and you weren't super emotionally attached to it, there might be like a small day or two where you're like, oh, I'm going to miss this and this and this person, and I'm going to miss these aspects of my job. But if you were at that same job for 25 years and you developed deep friendships and really enjoyed being a part of the company but had to leave for whatever reason because you're moving across the country or whatever, then there would be a longer time of grieving. You're going to miss those friendships. You're going to miss seeing people daily. You're going to miss you know, being a part of that culture. When you're in a trauma-bonded relationship, this almost becomes a deep intrinsic part of your identity. You start to kind of revolve around this person and to get your sense of self from this person. In fact, codependency is often part of trauma bonding. It doesn't always have to be. Codependency is something different than trauma bonding. Codependency is where you get your sense of self from being needed by another person and feeling like you're there to fix and help the other person. So that can be a part of trauma bonding, but it doesn't have to be a part of trauma bonding. It can just be trauma bonding without codependency. But do you understand if your identity was wrapped up in this in some part, that there will be a grieving process? Now, if you've gotten to a place where you're like, this isn't healthy for me anymore, I don't like the chaos I don't feel good on a regular basis because I will say this, in a trauma-bonded relationship at the beginning, it feels amazing. The person love bombs you. They treat you to all these amazing things. They tell you that you're the most important person in their life, that maybe you're the only person who gets them. They might share some of their trauma with you so that you have that quick bond. And at the beginning, this person might feel like your soulmate. They might feel like the person you've been looking for your whole entire life. Nobody gets you, appreciates you, loves you the way this person does. And then we start going through the cycle. And maybe the first time, it doesn't hurt as badly. It just feels like, oh, that was maybe they're having a bad day. But what happens is as this relationship progresses, the abuse often happens more frequently. The reconciliation periods are shorter. And you start getting less of a high from the the cycle. You start getting less of that dopamine response and that adrenaline response. Like you stop responding to those chemicals as much as you used to before. Like it would have to escalate for you to get that same response. So if you're in the same cycle, it might start to occur to you that this just isn't good for me. This is unhealthy It doesn't feel worth it anymore, but you also find that it's really difficult to leave. So if you're in that place and you're like, I'm ready to leave, but I just don't know how, and I'm worried I'll go back because maybe you have several times in the past, 
here are some ideas from several different therapists. It was like the same list kept showing up over and over again on therapy websites. But here's a condensed list of some of the top four things you can do to help yourself move forward. The first one is to separate yourself from the relationship, at least for a time. For the same reason we send people addicted to alcohol or other chemicals to rehabilitation centers so they can go long enough without the substance to begin to create new patterns of living and coping, you will likely have to separate yourself from those that you are trauma bonded with, at least for a while, so that you can create new patterns of thinking, working through emotion, and behaving. And you'll have to decide what that looks like for you. Maybe you live separately for a while. Maybe you keep contact very surfacey. If it's a friend or a family member, maybe for a while you go no contact. There are several different options that you can choose. So sit and listen to yourself. Like, what does your inner wisdom want to do? If they could wave a magic wand, what would they do right now if they could? And make that choice. Now, sometimes when we talk about trauma bonding and we want to wave a magic wand, what we want to do is we want to change the other person. They're not changing, at least not right now. They might not change ever. So that's off the table. We can't wave a magic wand and change the other person. We can't change the organization. All we can do is change our situation. So if we could wave a magic wand and if we could feel safe making the choice that we need to make, What is the choice that we feel drawn to making? That's going to give you some big clues about what your next steps are and how you need to separate yourself out from this cycle. Second, you're going to need to surround yourself with support during this time, especially because you've really relied on this relationship to meet your needs during the reconciliation phase. And you've been willing to put up with the harm and the abuse in order to get your needs met during that reconciliation phase, you need to surround yourself with support. And this may be a little difficult because sometimes part of the trauma bond is being isolated from others so that the only person you feel like you can rely on is the person that you're trauma bonded with. So first ask yourself, do you have friends who you can talk with that will listen without judgment? That's what you're looking for. People who can listen to your experience um, objectively without judgment and who can give you a safe space to process. So do you have friends you can talk to? Do you have family members who would love you and support you no matter what? And again, can listen to what you're going through, can be there as a support for you without judgment, without shaming you, without making you feel guilty? Like, can they get curious with you instead of judging you? Can you find a therapist that you feel comfortable with, that you could talk honestly with? I would highly recommend a trauma-informed therapist, but if you can't find that, again, the biggest factor here is somebody that you're comfortable with somebody that you feel like you can be honest with so that you can talk about these things that you've been locking inside and someone who will listen without judgment and help you like sort through the things that come up. I also highly recommend joining a support group of others who've been through something similar because if people have been through something like you've been through, they can both understand and validate your experience. So hearing other people's similar experiences also help us feel less crazy. 
because we often feel crazy after extended periods of being gaslit, which is a huge piece to the trauma bond. Next week, we're also going to talk more about support groups because you'll likely experience something called bonding over trauma while in these groups. And we're going to talk about how to enjoy the benefits of that while also avoiding some of the pitfalls that come with these kinds of relationships. And these pitfalls are especially poignant if we're coming from trauma bonding with our families, religious organizations, with God, a romantic partner, siblings. When we're coming from trauma-bonded relationships and other people are coming from trauma-bonded relationships, sometimes we get the therapeutic benefits of just getting to like hear and understand each other in this environment of non-judgment and validation. And sometimes when we've come from abusive backgrounds, there is sometimes um, an opportunity for those who have been victims of abuse to, in, in a situation where there are other victims, sometimes to act like the perpetrators. So those are some things to be aware of that can happen in support groups. We'll talk more about that next week. We're also going to talk about how we can sometimes get stuck in the trauma if we're surrounded by a whole bunch of other people where we just want to hash out the trauma over and over again, because again, we're getting hits of biochemicals and we become almost a little addicted to that, that feeling of reliving and rehashing the trauma. And we can kind of get stuck in places instead of moving forward and beginning to grow and expand. We'll talk about all of that next week. There's a lot to cover. And uh, I want to make sure that you get the information you need to continue to heal and get the support that you need. But I highly recommend joining a support group, but also listen to your inner knowing. If you're in the support group and it feels like it's re-traumatizing you, it's not the support group for you. Even if it feels safe to others, it's not the support group for you. If you're in a support group and it feels good for a while, but then it starts not feeling good, listen to that. That's okay. The next thing you're going to want to do is give yourself time to grieve. You're experiencing a significant loss and it's normal and healthy to give yourself time to grieve that loss and the subsequent changes in your life because that person or organization is no longer filling that gap in your life. Give yourself permission to grieve as though a death has taken place because in many ways it has. The old trauma-bonded relationship is dead. Moving forward, it won't ever be the same, and it's okay to feel sad about that and to miss the high points of how it used to be. You may have a lot of feelings that come up during the grieving process. Some of them might be paradoxical or feel like they're in opposition to each other. Some of them won't make sense. And just give yourself permission to allow and feel whatever comes up. All of it is valid, even if it doesn't make sense. And last, write about the abuse when you feel safe to do so. So often, one of the things that keep us from healing is the deep sense of shame for staying in a situation we know has been unhealthy for us. Writing gives us a chance not only to wrap words around our experience and start to process it consciously, but to make it real and concrete and therefore a tangible problem we can begin working to resolve. It also allows us to take ownership of our story and start voicing the shame we might feel for staying so long. Remember, shame thrives in secrecy, silence, and judgment. 
Writing it makes it no longer completely secret or silent. And if you can give yourself permission to let your story come out of your pen or keyboard however it needs to, and don't worry about whether your interpretation of events was correct, if you're overreacting, if you misread things because of your insecurity, don't worry about your penmanship or your spelling or your grammar. This isn't for anyone but you. Create safe space for you to put words to your experience, to like wrap words around what happened so you can begin to process it. And it will also help you release that shame. I hope this has been helpful to understand. As we've been talking about healthy attachment styles, trauma bonding has come up in several conversations. And as I was researching, I've learned so much more and I hope it helped you understand your situation too. Knowledge is power when it comes to healing. Knowing what we're experiencing can give us the ability to problem solve how we want to deal with it. I am looking forward to hearing your experiences, your questions, and your comments either in the Messenger app on Instagram, I'm at Emancipated Molly, or by email at terry at emancipatedcoaching.com. I can't wait to see what comes up for you. I always learn from the conversations I have with you in the live call each Wednesday and in my messenger app and in my email. I love hearing from you. And I will see you next Sunday.